I was more horrified knowing that she didn't die peacefully in her sleep, that her last few minutes was struggling and trying to breathe. I think about that every night. So. My brother and I both started having nightmares. I would have visions of her in her gown and robe going to a door and someone trying to get in. And I would say to her, don't open the door. I would try to save her in my dreams all the time. That was something that was very hard to hear, what he did to them. It was hard to hear those depositions. And Mary Bartell saying, I knew when I opened that door, I was fixated on those green gloves. I knew I was in grave danger. My eyes were just fixated on these green rubber gloves that I saw. I knew my life was in grave danger. I'm sure that's how my mom felt. Police across Dallas and Collin counties are worried they have a serial killer on their hands. Just days before an alleged serial killer will go to trial, we're taking a closer look at the murder spree Billy Shamirmir is accused and suspected of committing. It includes at least 24 murders and two attempted murders throughout North Texas beginning in 2016. He would take a pillow and suffocate them. So it was hard for the medical examiner's office to figure out that there was a pattern that he was suffocating these elderly women. He was banking on them not doing full-blown autopsies. Uh, I'm not even sure what the real number is. I don't think anybody will ever know. One case led to another, to another, and then all of a sudden we were pretty blown away. And this may be the most prolific serial killer in the history of our state. Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, these are the names of serial killers that almost everyone knows. And yet the man who might be the most prolific serial killer in Texas history, well, his is a name that most Americans do not know. And in a strange way, that's part of the reason why Billy Shamirmir was able to kill so many victims for so long. Because he chose to attack those that, sometimes as a society, we find the easiest to forget. Billy Shamirmir stalked and killed the elderly. During a two-year rampage of terror, Billy Shamirmir made his way through independent living facilities near Dallas, Texas, suffocating victims, stealing their jewelry. Despite this horrid trail of death and theft, he kept on getting away with it because facilities and institutions designed to protect these residents failed repeatedly. And they wrote off the murders as innocent, unattended deaths. The families involved were often told their loved ones had died peacefully from natural causes. Ageism is rampant in America, often with devastating impacts on the victims. But in the case of Billy Shamirmir, the ageism was, quite literally, fatal. This is a very, very hard story to tell. But these deaths cannot be forgotten. A murder rampage committed by a madman, but enabled by age bias, must never happen again. So today at The Perfect Scam, we begin a four-part series on fatal ageism in connection with AARP, the magazine. I'm your host, Bob Sullivan. And we begin in Dallas, in a luxury-gated retirement community named Edgemere, with Lauren Adair, whose mom moved there a decade ago with big plans and dreams to enjoy the next phase of her life. My mom is Phyllis Payne. And where was she born? She was born in Fort Worth, Texas. 
So she lived her whole life in Texas? She did not. Actually, after she and my dad married, he was working for a company that moved them all over the United States. She laughed and said that they lived in 20 houses in 20 years. But the family settled back in Texas when it was time to raise the kids. Phyllis loved being a mom and a grandma. Yeah, well, she was she was just so involved and loved being part of everything that we were doing. She was very supportive mom, very that mom that believed in you and loved all of your activities and just supporting and taking you everywhere, you know. And she was the same way with my kids. And she was always at their baseball games or their ballet recitals or whatever it was they were doing. Phyllis was in her 80s when her husband died. Within a year, she decided that big old house was too much to take care of. She was living in the house where she raised us. She and my dad, they had been in that house for 46 years. And one day she said, you know what? The garage door just broke again. The, the sprinkler system just broke again. I am tired of taking care of this house. And she knew people at Edgemere. And so she said, I want to move. So this was her decision. And she was very excited about it. She loved it after she moved in there. Whenever people would ask her, how do you like living at Edgemere? She would just say, what's not to like? Edgemere looks more like a resort than an independent living facility. People move there to live, not to grow old. And Phyllis was thriving, still driving into her 90s. Not that she had to drive far. It was nearby. We had we lived five minutes from her in the house that they lived in. But then when she moved, we were just about 10 minutes away. So it was still very convenient to, to get to be with her. In 2016, it was so important that mom lived that close because Lauren's husband was dying from terminal cancer. Lauren leaned on her mom a lot. Oh, goodness. She, she was the person that I talked to every day. We were together multiple times a week and just doing simple things. Just if, Even if we were just running errands, she wanted to be with us. She wanted to be doing whatever we needed done. When Phyllis wasn't with Lauren, she had very full days at Edgemere. She typically ate her breakfast in her apartment. Her apartment did have a full kitchen. And so she would get up and fix herself some breakfast and read the newspaper was her first thing. Then she would probably go for a, a walk around. And she also was volunteering at Edgemere in the, uh, there was a little store in there and she would volunteer in the store. And so she would go down there and, and volunteer on certain days. She was in a bridge club. She was in some different organizations. And so she would, you know, go see friends for lunch or we would go have lunch together and go run errands. She had her church and her other organizations that she was part of. And so she would love to go to maybe a book club and hear a speaker. She just wanted to keep learning and growing mm -hmm. even, at nine, even at 91. Mom always wanted to be a part of everything, but one weekend in 2016, when Lauren plans a family vacation to the beach, she fears it will be her last trip with her husband. Well, Mom, her busy social schedule just can't fit it in. We were going to the beach. We were going to Gulf Shores. And we said, come come with us. And she said, I'm already committed to host Bridge Club at Edgemere. And I've made that commitment. And I really don't think I should break that. And y'all go and, and 
have fun and we'll talk and we'll see you when you get back. So my husband and I drove and we had stopped along the way to spend the night on Friday and called her that evening. And she had, you know, had her, she had had the bridge club that day. And so we had a great conversation and she fussed and said, well, they didn't have the tables set up right. And I had to go chase someone down to set the tables up, but my cards were really good and the food was good and everybody had a, had a fun time. And so we just had this great talk. For Phyllis, Saturday, May 14th, 2016, begins like any other day. She wakes up, probably makes breakfast, reads the paper, thinks about last night's bridge game. When a knock comes at the door, it's a man who says he's there for maintenance. He wants to check on the medical alert button in her bathroom. Phyllis lets him in. Meanwhile, Lauren and her family have arrived at their vacation and they're busy getting settled in and so... It's unusual, but mom and daughter don't talk that Saturday. Sunday morning begins at the beach with laughter and sunshine. Then the phone rings. It's Lauren's brother. Something has happened to mom. Edgemere had gotten a hold of him. He said that she had passed away. And I just dropped to my knees and in the sand and said, what do you mean? We just talked to her. She just, you know, she just... She just hosted Bridge Club. She was great. I'd been to the doctor with her a week before for her checkup, and the doctor had said she was fine. And she she only took one pill, one blood pressure pill. She was still so vibrant and alive and active. And so we were we were devastated and shocked. And so yeah, it was pretty horrific. The family throws everything into the car and races back to Dallas. It's all so sudden. During the drive, they called the facility. We got a hold of Edgemere to say, what, you know, what happened? And they said that she had not shown up for Sunday, for Sunday breakfast with some people that were expecting her. And so they went and checked on her and found her in her apartment. Just looked like she had, you know, she was still in her gown and robe just looked like she had maybe laid down to take a nap or just hadn't and that she had died in her sleep. It's a comforting thought that mom died in her sleep, but it doesn't make things feel much better. Now there's that long drive ahead and then the awful task of cleaning up all the usual loose ends. When they get to Dallas, that begins with going through mom's things in her room. When we were cleaning out the refrigerator to throw away food, that's when it dawned on us, oh, the coffee can. Where is it? Where is the coffee can? It was a secret, that coffee can, but it was precious. Mom would never have misplaced it. She had kept her best jewelry in a in a coffee can in, in the <laughs> coffee refrigerator, can right? Coffee can in the refrigerator, yes. That's, that's really, first of all, that's rather ingenious, I think. <laughs> yes, I think uh, so, too. You, uh, you knew about the coffee can, or was that? Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, um, we knew about the coffee can. She She'd done that for years. She done that. She did that in their in their home that they lived in because she thought that was you know very good way to store it and not have it be found. They look everywhere. The coffee can with mom's finest jewelry isn't anywhere, and there are a few other mysterious things out of place. Part of her sterling silver flatware was missing, and so at that point we just thought maybe someone had had pilfered it. In the midst of all the sadness and grief and loose ends, now there's another one. A possible theft. 
Lauren files a police report, but missing jewelry is far from her mind. Her mom, her rock, isn't there to talk with every day anymore. She won't be there to help her deal with her dying husband. One day, mom is hosting Bridge. The next day, she's gone. So Lauren mostly forgets about the missing jewelry and focuses on her husband's few remaining days. She has no way of knowing that one month earlier, on April 7th, Catherine Sinclair had also died, unattended, at Edgemere. Or that a few weeks after Phyllis dies, on June 5th, Phoebe Perry is also found dead. Another unattended death at Edgemere. And as Lauren begins the healing process, she doesn't hear that only a few days after Phoebe Perry dies, on June 18th, a man is arrested for trespassing on the floors of Edgemere. My name is Diana Tannery, and I'm in Nacogdoches, Texas. And where is that? That is East Texas. East Texas. Um, How far from Dallas are you? I'm a three-hour drive from Dallas. My mother, her full name was Juanita Purdy, is how they know her. Juanita Purdy was a bit of a legend at Tradition Prestonwood Independent Living Facility, a complex that's about a 15-minute drive north of Edgemere in Dallas, Nestled next to the White Rock Creek, it's much more like a college campus than a retirement community. Juanita and her husband are among the first to move into the facility when it opens in 2015. She even boasts a founder's tag. When her husband dies of cancer, she moves to a smaller unit on the same floor, the legendary fourth floor, where Juanita and her friends often make mischief. Oh yeah, she's, she's, they were known as the party girls on the fourth floor because if it was any kind, you know, Mardi Gras, they had Mardi Gras parties, they had Christmas parties, and everybody knew the fourth floor was where to go. And so she was known as one of the party girls. And she always liked her red wine because, you know, red wine is good for your heart. So she always had a red wine at night. So we, every time we went down to the dining room, she had her carafe of red wine with her and I always and then Tuesdays and Fridays they always had happy hour there so those are the days that I would come and visit and spend the night with her on, on a Tuesday or a Friday <laughs> oh my god so you would you would crash there because you were all drinking exactly Juanita knows how to have fun but her life had been touched by tragedy many times two previous husbands had also died of cancer but that means she has a big very big blended family and the Christmas card list must be enormous, is what I'm saying. Oh, thinking. yeah. And my mother, she never forgot a birthday. One of the uh, grandkids said that's one thing we're going to miss is always having a birthday card from my mom. Juanita is thriving at Tradition Prestonwood. Well, she always woke up. She opens the door and gets the newspaper. And then she always has her hot tea. She reads the newspaper for a while. And then uh, she'll have her cereal. She likes to go down and exercise, do exercise classes or any of the continuing education. So they had classes and stuff like that for that. So she did that and she liked to go shopping. And so every time we came in, we went shopping. She never liked to just stay, you know, inside very long. She always liked to go out and do stuff, have fun. July 30, 2016 is a Friday night and Juanita is out to dinner with friends, but she doesn't want to be out too late. She's really excited about an amazing seven-course dinner planned for Saturday. It's a tradition because they always had stuff like that. And so she was really looking forward to that because she really likes, you know, to dine and wine and that kind of fun stuff. But when dinner starts, 
Juanita isn't in her seat. As they move through the seven courses, her friends start to worry. Someone tells the front desk, and sometime in the next few hours, an employee conducts a wellness check. Juanita is found dead in her room, an unattended death. Soon after, Diana gets a call from an employee at Tradition Prestonwood. He says, you need to come here. And I was asking him why. He goes, I just, you just need to come to the Traditions. And then my husband took the phone. He goes, could you please tell me what's going on? And, and he said that they found my mother and she must have died peacefully in her sleep. Peacefully in her sleep? But she was out on Friday night. She was ready for that seven-course meal. Diana and her husband race to Dallas, but it's going to be several hours before they get there. By the time they arrive, Mom has been moved, and, well, something just doesn't look right, she tells an employee. We were walking around, and I always remembered my mom always took her rings off and laid them on a really pretty glass crystal heart that was next to the sink, and I noticed there was no rings there. I asked, I said, did you see any rings? And he goes, no, he goes, there wasn't any rings that we saw of and he goes but it might have been on or you need to call you know the EMT and see if they I said okay he said that it was probably one of the EMTs but probably not because we'd probably lose her job if they took it and I said well what about people from traditions and he said that that they will do their own investigation and there's something else that's wrong very wrong we're sitting there and I started looking I go she woke up this morning. She didn't die in her sleep. And mm. Philip goes, what do you mean? I said, because the Sunday's paper is right here out on the table. And her tea is sitting right there. I said, she was up this morning. And perhaps she died during a nap, she remembers, the employee saying. Well, she must have started not feeling good and then went back to bed. And that's when she died. And I was like, well, that just doesn't make sense because she just had a physical. Everything was fine. But I was like, you know, she was, I was like everybody else. She was 83, you know, there was nothing wrong with her. But I just, there was just this weird, why was the paper out and why did she, you know, and why are they telling me she died in the sleep? Well, I just knew that she didn't die peacefully in her sleep. I knew that she had woken up. Well, she probably started feeling bad and went back to sleep. And I thought, okay, well, maybe that could be plausible, you know, feasible. I was like, that. but then, then the joy was gone. By the time they add it all up, Diana figures about $27,000 worth of jewelry is gone. She doesn't know what to think of it. And she doesn't know that on July 18th, just two weeks earlier, Joyce Abramowitz had died an unattended death at Tradition Prestonwood. But Leah Corkin, who lives near Juanita on the fourth floor, has definitely taken notice of these deaths. She mentions it to her daughter, MJ Jennings, just a couple of days after Juanita's passing. She had said to me, they're dropping like flies around here. I don't know what's going on. It's the kind of dark humor MJ was used to from her mom. They'd become very close after her father died several years earlier. I lost dad. I, th I thought I hadn't felt pain before. Dad died, but he died of pancreatic cancer in 2009. And it was just the worst thing ever imaginable. It was uh, three months after he was diagnosed. Because, you know, here he is, this rock star of a, of a you know, dad looked like a CIA agent and, and James Bondish, who just whittled away in three months. And it was excruciatingly painful. About two years later, 
mom moves from Tampa to Dallas to be near her youngest child. It was a lot of fun. Actually, I got to know mom more in the, I guess it was just six years, five years that she lived here than I ever really did my whole life because we were just always moving and going. So I really got to have a close bond with my mom once she moved here. Well, it was kind of like the closest we had ever been. So I got to develop, I, I kind of felt I was the luckiest because I got to spend all this time with mom. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov slash your moment today. At first, Leah lives in her own place in Dallas, but when Tradition Prestonwood starts advertising about this brand new state-of-the-art facility... About a year after she moved there, I was like, Mom, there's this new place called Tradition Prestonwood moving in around, literally around the corner. It's like a mile and a half away from me. And brand new building. So I was really excited about it. And we went and toured it. And, you know, she'd be the first person in her apartment and one of the first people in the building. So we were really excited when we found out that was being built. Moving to Tradition Prestonwood doesn't slow Leah Corkin's social life at all. After all, she lives on the fourth floor, the party floor. Still, she loves going out. Mom is a football fan a really big football fan. She's the kind that would belly up to the bar at a restaurant, <laughs> you know, at a cold beer at a Packers bar to watch her Green Bay Packers. Oh my God, she was the best fan in the world. And get on the phone with my brother and talk play by play. And she just, she was just a fun one. She had a lot of fun. Did she have a cheese head? Of course. I've got one in my bar right now. A bottle of vodka with a cheese head. (laughs) Mom's days are filled with activity. That includes plenty of phone calls with her children. You guys talked on the phone at least every day, right? Every day. So uh, we have a routine. So we would, I would wake up, get my coffee, call mom. So what you doing today? You know, there were lots of activities. She was still doing things like playing Wii or we bowling or whatever it was or she was going to the gym and and trying to stay fit and just I'd call her every morning between 9 and 9 30 a.m and then if I didn't see her that day my sister would get off work around three o'clock four o'clock our time and she would make sure to call mom every night to see how she was so we had a routine to check on her on a regular basis And then I was there at least four times a week, either taking her to dinner, picking her up. On August 18th, 2016, MJ and her mom go on a big date. I had taken her shopping and she's standing there with her hand on her hip. And I took a picture of it looking all sassy. We just (laughs) went to have dinner and then we were off to a movie. Uh, What movie did you see? I knew you were going to ask me that. The movie with Hugh Grant and Meryl Streep. 
she was she was it was it was just the most charming movie ever she wanted to be a singer but she was a terrible singer <laughs> but, but Hugh, Hugh Grant helped her and it was we just laughed and it was one of those you know dinner theaters where you get dinner served and, and oh, just nice. these comfortable chairs and it was right next door to tradition Prestonwood so it was so convenient she was just a you know a mile away like I said but yeah we just had a great time the next day, they talk in the morning as they do every day. But by lunchtime, the routine is broken. I had my normal call in the morning and asked her what she was doing that day. And she told me she was getting her hair done around noon. And so, you know, I had my chance to say, I love you. Have a great day, mom. And then that afternoon, my sister called and there was no answer. MJ's sister leaves a voicemail on one of those old-style answering machines, the kind where you can screen calls. So anyone in the room could have heard the message. Mom, where are you? Mom, pick up. But no one answers. Did anyone hear the calls? We'll never know. But when repeated efforts to raise mom fail, MJ becomes very concerned and calls the front desk. I asked them to just knock on her door and make sure she was okay. And at the same time, I said, I'm going to be on my way. So as I'm on my way, I get a phone call that says, you need to get here. And as I'm turning the corner, I see the reflection of fire truck or the um, EMTs. And I, I just lost it. My heart just sank, knowing it was mom. I knew it was mom. And then just parked the car and ran up there as fast as I could. She races upstairs to mom's apartment. I walk in and and it's just the two young EMT guys and my mom laying down on the floor with a, a sheet over her and they wouldn't let me see her so I obviously just started screaming and crying and shocked because I just lost her I just, I just didn't expect her I was just with her and didn't talk to her so I just didn't expect this happening and so I, I was pretty hysterical I'm sure I was just bawling and, and shock. The death is so fresh, the scene is still pretty chaotic. But in the midst of the shock and chaos, MJ notices something is wrong. They made me wait until the police officer came before they took the sheet off of her. In the meantime, staff at Tradition Prestonwood had, had come in. But I was angry that there wasn't anybody there except the EMT. And I, th I can't remember if it was before they took the sheet off or after I'd I looked, hey, it must have been after. I had looked at her finger and I'm like, where the hell's her ring? And I believe I I was yelling at her, who took a ring? Mom never took her ring off. She never took it off. So, and when they took the sheet off, I just, I've never seen a person die before. <clears throat> but I looked at it and I said, something, no, this, this, it's not that people die. It just looked, the way she was laying looked odd. Her walker was on the other side of the kitchen. Uh, I thought, well, why is it? There were just little snapshots I took that everything looked really odd. But I don't know how people die. So the staff there was hugging me and saying, yes, this is how people, if they have a stroke, this is how they fall. This is how they might look like. And I'm like, eh. You know, I'm, I'm kind of arguing, saying, I don't, I don't know about that, but that... Still trying to process everything that's happened, she starts to cling to the idea that mom died a peaceful death at age 83. But 
Things are nagging at her. That was comforting. I just hope that, you know, she she was hit with a stroke or whatever and died instantly and didn't even know what happened to her. That that was my a comforting thought. But at the same time, I'm looking around and I'm like, this doesn't look right. This doesn't look right. You know, ow, poor mom, poor mom. I'm just, just, I was heartbroken. And um, I felt, I was just heartbreaking. A few weeks later, Ellen French House would feel that same heartbreak. Tell me about your mom. So my mom was Norma French, and she was born in Galveston, Texas, on August 14th, 1931. I was the baby of four, and I was the most similar to my mom of all the kids. And there was five years difference between myself and my next sibling. So I got to spend a lot of time with my parents in their older years. That being said, we had so much fun together and she was fun and she was funny and witty and understanding and compassionate. We were so close that she could finish my sentences. She spent a lot of time with my family after my dad had passed away and we would travel together and take her on our trips with us. And we have a place in Florida. So she would come to Florida with us and she would cook and help with the kids. And then when we, she'd come visit me in Indiana, we would do gardening. She loved to garden and we would spend hours planting our flowers in May and teaching my kids to do the, to learn how to plant with us. My mom also was really wonderful seamstress. And so we spent a lot of time, she'd make a lot of my dresses and a lot of my clothes. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't appreciate appreciate that as well as I should now, but it's fun. So like your, your, your high school prom or something, did she make a dress for something like that? Yeah. Oh yeah. She would make those. And even in college. After her husband dies of melanoma in 2006, Norma lives in their home for almost a decade, but by 2014, time to try a simpler life. She moves to tradition Prestonwood. She wanted to downsize and she wanted to be in a safe environment. We wanted her to be in a safe environment. She had one of those flagstone backyards and, you know, you get worried as they get older, they're going to fall and they're by themselves. My brother and sister live in Dallas, so she saw them frequently. And we all talked to her every day, so we weren't too worried. But, you know, it was getting roof problems, had big trees, and the tree would fall into the house. And we're like, let's get her out of here. So it was actually really fun. I flew into Dallas, and we went and looked at a couple different places. And she ended up choosing where she's living. And I thought it was awesome and safe and very, very nice. And that she'd be happy there and safe. It turns out to be an easy adjustment. Norma loves living at Tradition Prestonwood. She really did travel a lot, and she drove. And so she would get up, depending on what day, you know, she'd have her cleaning girl come in. She would get a Bible study probably twice a week. So she did a lot of cooking for them, and she did cooking for the church that she'd take meals for funerals or whatever they had needed. She was active in with her church friends and her 
older friends that were most of our high school and college friends were out of town, but they would come in town and they would go to lunch or, you know, shopping or whatever every so often so they could all get together. It's now nearly two months since Juanita and Leah were found dead in their rooms at Tradition Prestonwood. It's early October 2016, and Norma isn't in Dallas. She's in Indianapolis visiting Ellen. It's a nice, long visit, about a month. A few days before she's meant to go back to Dallas, Norma says something unusual for the 85-year-old mom and grandmother. She'd get to bed earlier than I would, and we would go up with my kids and read them Bible stories and say our prayers, and then I'd go down and lay with her in bed. And we were just talking, and she said, Ellen, she said, I don't know what you're going to do without me. And she was genuinely worried. And I said, Mother, you don't have to worry about that. And she said, I just, I worry that you're just, if something happens, I said, Mother, first of all, nothing's going to happen. And second of all, you know what? You raised me in a Christian home. I know you're in heaven. I know I will see you again. And, you know, of course it made me cry. And I just said, don't even think about that or worry about it. It's just Strange she said that to me, and she went home two days later. Ellen always hates it when mom leaves. She wanted to go back. And of course, I always beg her, just stay a little bit longer. But Texas OU weekend was approaching, and she has friends that come in from Austin, and they go to dinner Friday night. Can't miss the Texas OU festivities. So they pack mom up for an early morning flight. My husband woke up and this is like five in the morning and went to the front door to say goodbye to her. And she gave just a big old hug to me. And she said, let's not cry today. She said, I'm going to see you in a couple weeks for Thanksgiving. And we'll be together soon. I said, okay, okay. And I was so tired. I didn't cry. It was like the only time I've not ever cried. And then my husband gave her a kiss on her forehead and and then when she got to Dallas, she'd always call me and say, I'm home, you know, whatever. She goes, you know, that was so sweet. Did you notice your husband kissed me on the forehead? And I said, no. And she goes, well, I don't think he's ever done that. And she's like, it was so sweet. So Norma gets back in time to see friends on Friday night, but decides she doesn't want to deal with the big game crowd on Saturday and instead plans to watch the game at home. That morning, she wakes up gets ready, and then goes down to the cafeteria to get a big salad to eat during the first half. The salad stays untouched on her kitchen counter. My sister had called me that evening and said, I can't get a hold of Mother. And I said, okay, well, I mean, I'm sure she's, maybe she's gone to sleep already or, you know, I don't know. So she said, will you try her? And I said, okay. So I called her twice on her cell phone went into voicemail, and then I called her on her landline, which she had one of those older machines that she can hear the person leaving a message. And I was like, Mother, hello, (laughs) answer your phone, or I'm going to ping you, because I also had her iPad Apple ID, and I could put it in and ping her if I really needed her. She did not like it when I did that, because it would scare her. Ellen pings her. Mom doesn't respond to anything. So the family asks for a wellness check. Ellen's sister gets a call back right away. Come to Tradition Prestonwood. My sister said, yes, I'll call my brother. So they drove over there and met 
the community relation director and he met them outside and there was an ambulance and my sister was you know just taken back and he told her out there that you know she had passed away and then they walked upstairs and as they were walking upstairs the paramedics were walking out and you know just confirmed whatever then when they got in the room the community director stayed with them the whole time and the police came and they had to you know have a cause of death heart attack or stroke they suggest to the family still on the phone from indiana ellen feels completely helpless she acts on instinct so my mom had donated her body to ut southwestern and so they had to wait a couple hours for them to get there to get her body and when they were coming, I said, I was hysterical, pretty much. I was, you know, my family was with me and no one could believe it, you know. And I said, you have to take a picture of her. And my sister's like, what? I go, you have to take a picture of her. I can't never see her body again. I need it for closure. And I just need it to believe, you know, the whole thing that's happened. I, my brother had died a while back and none of us ever saw his body and that was something I didn't realize was going to be hard because you always wonder okay was it really him I don't know so anyway they took a picture and it's a good thing they did because when they come to take the body there is an awful discovery when the UT Southwestern came I said oh check her jewelry my sister said she doesn't have her ring on and I said she has to have a ring on because she couldn't get it off. And I said, when she was here, we made chicken marcella one night. We both had flour and our rings. I said, I said, take off your ring. Let's wash our rings. And she said, I don't even take it off anymore. I said, oh, come on here. Here's some Dawn soap. <laughs> Let's pull them off. And could could not get it over her knuckle. And so we just washed it there and that was that. But it was interesting that that happened, that, that instant that I knew she couldn't get a ring off. I just started thinking, who in the world steals a ring off a dead person's body? It takes a couple of days for Ellen to get to Dallas. My sister picked me up at the airport and took me straight there. And there was the salad on the counter and a blood stain in the carpet. So she starts looking around the room, trying to figure out if anything else looks wrong. So went through everything and I mean, clothes, pocket. When she was visiting me, she had a cr big cross necklace that she had gotten gold chain and cross that she'd gotten in Italy. And just another thing, you know, I said, oh, you're wearing that cross that's so pretty. And she said, yeah, I took it out of the safety deposit box. I decided to, I should start wearing it. She had it in this little mesh case or bag. And she, I saw that mesh bag on her countertop and it was empty. And I said, did you, I just asked my sister, did you do anything with that necklace? And she said, no. And I said, okay, well, she had a necklace in there and she had cash in her wallet or she should have, she only had a couple dollars in there, but she had been to the bank the day before and gotten out $600 in cash and that was gone. And over time, we've realized a couple other items that were missing. When the opportunity arises, she reports her concerns. 
and she hears what sounds like a terrible theory about what's going on with these unattended deaths. So when we started making plans to do a service for her, we decided to do it at the building that she loved. And we had to talk to the staff and the management. And so we met down in their office and I just said to them, my mother's ring was stolen off of her finger by someone. And I was just trying to be nice. I said, you know, for you guys' sake, you shouldn't be sending your concierge up there by herself to find a deceased person. That's bad for them. You should always be sending in twos. And I said, and you, you should never let the paramedics alone with my mom. She should have never been alone until my brother and sister got there. And so they just kind of looked at me and said, oh, oh, okay, well, hmm. And then the next day, the director called me on the phone and she said, can I come up to your room? And I said, yes. And so she came up and she said, I just wanted to let you know that we have had two prior deaths with thefts. And I said, wedding rings? And she said, mm-hmm. And I said, okay, that is really bad. And she said, well, the other families are suspecting of the paramedics or the fire department. The other families suspect the paramedics? It's horrible. Too much to think about at the moment, really. She reports the theft to police, but she's got so many other things to think about. On October 15th, nine days after Norma French's unattended death, a big memorial service is held at Tradition Prestonwood. All Norma's friends are there. Ellen is overcome with grief, but still on that sad day, she notices flashing lights outside the building. EMTs are outside again. She doesn't know it yet, but they are there because there's yet another unattended death that day at Tradition Prestonwood. Who is it? And who in the world steals a ring off a dead person's body? That's next week on The Perfect Scam. If you have been targeted by a scam or fraud, you are not alone. Call the AARP Fraud Watch Network helpline at 877-908-3360. Their trained fraud specialists can provide you with free support and guidance on what to do next. For this special report, we want to thank AARP The Magazine's Vice President and Editor-in-Chief Bob Love, Executive Editor Bill Horn, Investigative Journalist Lisa Olson, and researcher, fact-checker, Annette Deinzer. Thank you to our team of scam busters, associate producer, Annalie Embry, researcher, Sarah Binney, executive producer, Julie Getz, and our audio engineer and sound designer, Julio Gonzalez. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For AARP's The Perfect Scam, I'm Bob Sullivan. <laughs>